Before we start our time in God's Word, you probably notice the plastic up there in the balcony. That's a, a dust cover over the area that they've torn up. You remember we're in the middle of a sanctuary seating renovation project, and so they've done a lot of the stuff you haven't seen, all the HVAC work, some of the things going on behind the scenes. And we're now to the point where we're tearing out the flooring and the uh, pews to move to the next phase. So those of you who are over in this side, the south side of the uh, balcony, next week that area is going to be gone. Uh, So you'll be over here. And uh, then in two weeks we'll be down here on the first floor. Uh, One Sunday we will have half the pews and half temporary chairs. And the next Sunday we'll have all temporary chairs And then starting the week of April 8th, they will be putting in the permanent seating, so we'll have everything in, uh, at least we believe, by Easter Sunday. So thank you again for all of your patience uh, in helping us to get to this, as well as the gifts that you've given to make the renovation project possible. I also want to mention that, again, because of past generosity and gifts, we were able to purchase another one of the Ivywood houses, so this one right next to us. Uh, We now own 11 of the 12 homes adjacent to us. So thank you for that. You can pray that God would give us the remaining house as well as the uh, little, no, I can't call it the cactus garden anymore. There's no more cactus in there, but you can pray for that section of land over there. Every time I drive by it, I pray that we could get that for additional parking. So again, many exciting things that are happening here at Wayside. So thank you for being a part of it as well as your patience as we continue to create more room for more people to hear about the gospel of Jesus. Well, this morning's daylight savings time. I don't have to remind you of that. You lost an hour as we turned the clock ahead to this morning. But I want you to turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 23. And as we turn there, if you think it's early this morning here, it was even earlier in Jerusalem that morning. And I want to turn the clock back, not forward, but back about 12 hours. Because if you turn the clock back about 12 hours from what we're looking at today, you'll remember that was about the time that Jesus was arrested. He had been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then as we saw last week, he had gone through a series of trials, uh, many kangaroo courts uh, where Jesus' rights had been trampled on, where everything that could have gone wrong did go wrong in terms of what was legal. We saw that Jesus was falsely accused. He was verbally and physically abused. He was mocked, spit on, slapped, and punched. Other accounts tell us that he was beaten on the head, Uh, With a rod, he had a crown of thorns driven into his brow, and then he was flogged with a cat of nine tails. That was a a horrendous type of whip that not only had multiple uh, leather straps that came off, but each end of those straps had either a rock, a piece of metal, or fragments of bone attached to it. And it was designed to strip the skin off the, the person that was being beaten, and then it would tear deep into the tissue, into the muscle, and it would cause great trauma. There would be blood uh, loss and shock if the person received the full 40 lashes. Many times they died just from that beating alone, so they would often stop right about 39, and the person just was within an inch of their life. And then on these shredded shoulders, what Rome would do is they would place a crossbeam. We always picture somebody carrying a full cross, but what they would do is take the main beam that weighed about 100 pounds And they would have the person carry that through the streets. And they would ultimately be nailed to that and then attached. And they would be raised up onto the other beam that was set there on the the hillside where they were crucified. 
So as Jesus is carrying this cross through the street, Rome liked to do that because it was a sign of guilt for the condemned person. But you remember, Jesus was not guilty of any crime. We saw last week where Pilate, the Roman judge, had said three different times, Jesus was innocent. He found no guilt in him. And yet Jesus went to the cross to die because of our guilt, to pay the penalty of death that we owed for our sins. And so as Jesus is walking through the street carrying this crossbeam, Uh, The scourging and pain he suffered was minor compared to the pain that the sinless, perfect God-man, the Son of God, must have felt as the weight of our sins was laid upon his shoulders. And as he's going along, Jesus, we saw last week, had been at the Praetorium where he was sentenced to death by Pilate. And this death sentence would be carried out in a place that, as you look at Luke 23, Uh, 33 calls the skull. Now, the Latin word for skull is calavaria. It's why we talk about calvary. It comes from this Latin word, calavaria. There's also a Greek word, uh, cranon, from which we get our English word cranium, that means the skull. The Aramaic word is Golgotha. And if you go to Jerusalem, you can see uh, there are two main sites that people believe could have been the place of Jesus' crucifixion. We'll talk more about this again next week. One of those is outside of the Damascus Gate. If you go there today, this is what it looks like. I'll show you a picture in a moment that you can see the features better. But you can see there's a skull there. And it wasn't so much because of the appearance of the place as much as the atrocity of death that happened there. But as you go there today, it's, it's a little uh, kind of underwhelming. There's a bus terminal at the bottom. And the Muslims have actually built a cemetery up on top to try to defile that area because any place that had significance to Christianity or Judaism, they tried to uh, take over, and so they've built a a Muslim cemetery up on top. But this is what this area looked like in the 1800s, and you can see more clearly uh, the face of a skull there uh, on the rock. But as I said, it was as much not for the appearance as the death that would take place there. Crucifixion was the cruelest form of capital punishment known to humanity. The Persians invented it and the Romans perfected it. It was so horrendous that no Roman citizen was allowed to die by crucifixion. Uh, They used it as a means of crowd control. It was a, a control by fear because as these public executions took place, they saw them as a deterrent to others who might... Uh, commit crimes or uh, think of uh, trying to rebel against Rome. As Jesus carries the cross, the beatings they had given him had taken their toll to the point that the Romans were afraid that he might die before he actually got up on top of Calvary. So as we pick up the story now in Luke twenty-three twenty-six, we see that they pick out a man by the name of Simon to have him carry the cross. I invite you to look with me now as we read Luke twenty-three twenty-six through 32. It says, when they led Jesus away, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the country, and they placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. And following him was a large crowd of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. But Jesus turned to them and said, daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the womb that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. And then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the, to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others also who were criminals were being led away to be put to death with them. Now you remember as we've been going through these 
last days and events of Jesus' life, we've talked about prophecies like Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, the prophet Isaiah spoke of the, the Messiah and the crucifixion, the way he would die. And one of the details that is found in Isaiah 53, 12, is it says that he would be numbered with transgressors, yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. And here we see this fulfilled as Jesus is being taken to be killed with two criminals. Uh, Matthew 27, 38 tells us they were robbers. And the word that is used there doesn't mean a thief who steals stealthily at night. Rather, it means a person who uses uh, extreme and open violence to rob. So these were guys who had probably killed other people during the course of a robbery. They were guilty of capital crimes, like we would say in our day, of of murder during robbery. We're going to come back next week and talk more about these two criminals. So I want us to focus this morning on this other man named Simon. Now you see that Luke tells us he's from Cyrene. Cyrene was a a major Roman colony that was located in modern-day Libya. It was 800 miles away in North Africa. And more than 100 years before Jesus walked the earth, uh, there was uh, tens of thousands of Jews who had been exiled to North Africa. And so there in Cyrene, you had a large Jewish colony. And Simon is one of these Jews who makes this journey to Jerusalem. And the reason that he comes is, you'll remember, the Mosaic law said that there were three feasts that every observant Jewish male was required to go to Jerusalem uh, to observe. One was Passover which we saw in the Last Supper, Jesus was celebrating Passover with the disciples. And then Pentecost, penta meaning 50, is 50 days after Passover, there was this other celebration. And then the other one was the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles. And so if you came to Jerusalem for Passover, uh, they didn't have planes and trains and things like we have. So somebody like Simon, who's made this 800-mile journey, would have stayed from Passover to Pentecost, to celebrate uh, both of those mandatory feasts while he was there. And if you look at Acts chapter 2, it tells us that as the church was birthed at Pentecost, there were Jews there from all over the Roman Empire, including, as Acts 2.10 says, the districts of Libya around Cyrene. So Simon is one of these Jews uh, that is mentioned there in Acts 2.10, as well as what we're looking at today. Now, as, as we think in terms of, of Simon making this 800-mile journey. I want you to think about a time maybe where you made a, a, a long trip somewhere, possibly overseas. Uh, do you remember the excitement and the preparation as you got ready for a trip like that? Do you remember saving your money, uh, getting all the travel brochures, studying the area, figuring out what your itinerary would be, all the things that you would do? And as you get on the day of your trip comes, you board the plane, or maybe it was a boat, uh, and you make this long journey, and you arrive at the airport, or you get off the boat at the, the seaport. And, and in either case, you're in that country, you're excited to be there, but you haven't yet reached your destination, right? Maybe you're going to uh, see one of the landmarks in that country. Well, this is Simon. He's made this 800-mile journey by boat, by land, and he's, he's in Israel, but he still has the last leg of the journey to come into Jerusalem because it's Passover. And he's going up to the temple, uh, the temple mount there in the actual city of Jerusalem. And as he's on this last leg of his journey, Luke twenty three twenty six tells us Simon is coming in from the countryside. 
Now, he's not the only pilgrim that's there. There were literally hundreds of thousands of people from all the surrounding region that were coming. So the city is packed. The countryside is packed. These pilgrims would be in processions, and we've seen in the past where they would be singing songs of ascent as they were coming up. Uh, at Palm Sunday, they're all going up and singing these, these uh, messianic psalms. And so Simon's wearing his best clothes. He's, he's singing these songs. He's, he's thought of this day for, forever. And he's pictured what it would be like. And the day has arrived. He's coming up the hillside. He's on the Mount of Olives. He's going down maybe into the valley, about to go up into the city. And he sees the temple up there on the mount. And as he's going along in this procession, singing these songs with all the other pilgrims, there's another procession coming out of the city. Now, he's not prepared for what he sees there because this one is unlike the group he's in. The people there are not happy and excited. Instead, they're angry. There are some who are in despair. We're told the women are weeping. They're wailing. He sees the religious leaders in their robes. Remember, they've been going around from trial to trial to trial. So the whole Sanhedrin is there, all 70 of the Jewish leaders. And they're all angry looking, and there are Roman soldiers with them. And they're pushing the crowd along. And in the midst of that, he, he finally sees this, this condemned criminal. And, and as he looks at this man, he, he can't believe what he sees. Remember, he's been beaten, bloodied for the entirety of the night. As you read Isaiah, it talks about how he had no stately form. It means that his physical form is, has just been beaten out of him. And, and he sees this man who's, who's leaving this blood trail as he goes along. And, and Matthew and Mark tells us in their accounts that the soldiers are still beating and pushing Jesus. They want to get to Calvary. Jesus is moving too slow. They're trying to move him along. But Jesus has been up all night. He's been suffering. He's been abused. He hasn't eaten or drank anything. And he's, he's lost all this blood. His body's in the shock. It's shutting down. It's why he keeps falling to the ground. And as he falls into the dirt once again, they're kicking him and beating him. But no matter how much they hit Jesus, he's not moving. There's nothing left for him to get up. He could die right there. And with the Romans, that would be okay. They would be done with him. But you remember the Jews are there and they want the maximum effect. They want him crucified. That's why they went to Pilate. They could have stoned Jesus to death for blasphemy, but they couldn't have him crucified without Rome. And so they want him on a cross on a hillside. They want the maximum effect. And in doing so, they were unaware that they were fulfilling the prophecies. Prophecies that Galatians 3.10 tells us, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For as it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The Old Testament said the Messiah would die the criminal's death, crucified on a tree. So the Romans need to get Jesus to Calvary, but he can't make it on his own. So they look around in the crowd trying to find somebody to carry his cross, and they lock eyes with Simon. And they say, you, carry his cross. Simon's sitting there and he's going, why do you want me? And he, he, he tries to blend into the crowd. He tries to turn and run, but he's hemmed in by the crowd. And suddenly he feels uh, the, the calloused hands of a Roman soldier grab him. And he jerks him forward. Luke says they seized him. They laid hold of him. Matthew and Mark tell us they compel him. 
He's trying to resist. He's trying to run. And one soldier reaches for a sword. The other one's got a hold of him. They throw him to the ground. Suddenly he's down there in the dirt. Face to face with this this beaten face of Jesus. Put yourself in Simon's place for a moment. This was not the dream trip he had imagined. This was not the way Simon had pictured this in his mind. His dream trip has suddenly become a nightmare. He, he had thought about that day where he's, he's going to come into Jerusalem. He's going to go up into the temple. He's going to stand at the, the railing in the court of the Israelites. He's going to have a Passover lamb sacrificed for him. You remember the reason that they would sacrifice these Passover lambs was because all the way back into the Old Testament time, the first Passover lambs were given when God said, I want you to take the blood of the lamb and paint it on the doorpost of your home. And when the angel of death sees the blood, he will pass over your home. And the firstborn in that home will not suffer death like happened to all the Egyptians. And so the Jews were, were remembering this great redemption of God through the blood that was shed from a Passover lamb. And as Simon is there now, he's face to face with the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as John one twenty nine tells us. But he doesn't know yet who Jesus is. And there he's face to face in the dirt with Jesus. And, and as, as he's looking at this, he's gone from singing songs of holy, holy, holy to this horror. And he's not the only one seeing this. Remember, there are women in the group as well. It said they were, they were wailing. They were lamenting what was happening. Uh, Jesus turns and he says to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the womb that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. And then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things, Jesus says, when the tree is green, what will happen when it's dry? When Jesus says daughters of Jerusalem, this was an Old Testament designation for the women of the city of Jerusalem. Places like Micah 4, 8, Zephaniah 3.14 tell us this was of the women of Jerusalem. That's telling us it's local ladies. These are not the women from Galilee that have come to minister to Jesus that we see following around and doing things. These were ladies in the street who had been caught up by the, the crush of the crowd. And as they're going along and as they see this, this man, they're, they're weeping over the injustice of his death. And Jesus turns and he, he says to them, he's, he's face down in the dirt, barely any strength left. He's bleeding out and he looks at them and he says, don't, don't mourn for me. Mourn for yourself. Mourn for your children. Jewish women considered barrenness a sign of misfortune. As we did the baby dedications earlier, you heard me quote Psalm 127.3. Children are a gift from God and they are. But what Jesus was saying is there is a day coming where there will be such horrific things in the judgment that is to come that moms would wish they never had any children because of the things their children would face. And this is the context of what Jesus is quoting here. His, his quotation is from Hosea chapter 10, verse 8, a prophecy speaking of the judgment that is to come. It's repeated in Revelation uh, chapter 6, verses 15 through 16. There it says, Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us. 
and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. The wrath of the Lamb. This is Jesus. Jesus who will one day be enthroned in heaven. They will see him for who he is, the promised Messiah, God in his glory, seated on his throne in heaven. Jesus has warned them all throughout the Gospel of Luke. We've seen over and over where Jesus says, you've been rejecting the messengers, the prophets. You've been rejecting me as the Messiah. We saw that in Luke chapter 11 in verses 49 and 51. We saw it again in Luke 13, 1 through 5, and then in 34 through 35. It happened in Luke 19, 41 through 44, and again in Luke 21, uh, 20 through 24. Over and over, Jesus has been saying, I am the Messiah. Don't miss this. If you reject me, there will be judgment. And here, once again, as he's on his way to die, he gives these women and the people around one more warning. He says, I am the Messiah. Don't miss this. Because if you reject me, you will be rejected one day. If you reject my payment in your place, as I'm going to die for your sins, you will get to pay the penalty yourself. Jesus is saying, if I'm innocent, which I am, we saw Pilate three different times during the trial say, I find this man to be innocent. There's, he's not guilty. And Jesus says, if I, being innocent, am suffering this, what will happen to you who are guilty? You who are guilty of sin, which we all are. The Bible tells us, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God in Romans 3.23. We're all guilty. And he says, if you reject me as the Messiah, if you do not accept my gift of grace, me dying in your place, then you get to pay the penalty yourself. This is a warning not just for the Jews in the first century. This is a warning for us today to say, don't miss who Jesus is. Don't miss his gift of grace. There's an ancient Saxon chronicle that's told of a a rebellion that happened in a kingdom. And the king comes in and he crushes the rebellion and he takes the castle where the headquarters had been. And what the king did was he took a candle and he put it in the archway, the window at the archway of the castle, and he lit it. And he sent out an edict to all of the surrounding province where the rebellion had taken place. And he said, I'm offering amnesty. I'm offering grace. Anyone who has rebelled against me, if you will come and repent... And swear your allegiance, if you will turn back to me and be loyal to me, I will forgive your crimes. He said, but the offer is good only as long as the candle is lit. He said, when it burns down, then the offer is, is, is gone and you'll suffer judgment. And God has made a similar offer to us. He said, I gave you my son, the Messiah, to come and pay the penalty of death that was owed for our sins. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And he says, if you will receive my grace, my gift of eternal life, then you'll be saved. But if you reject it, there is a time of judgment that is coming. Jesus says here, the nation of Israel was like a green tree. He's saying, during my time on earth, you had an opportunity. Uh, There was opportunity and blessing to come to me. He says, but now it is a time where the tree is, is dry, fit only for the fire. If you miss this, there will be judgment. 
And as he speaks these words, remember, he's on his way to die, to die on the cross. And as the Romans are there, as he's speaking to the women, as he's in the dirt, the Romans say, enough of this. And they probably take the butt end of their spears and they start hitting him and Simon and saying, get up, get moving. We've got to get to Calvary. And so that, that heavy wooden beam weighing about 100 pounds is laying there in the dirt and is dragged up onto Simon's shoulders. And, and he gets up, and remember, he's wearing his finest tunic. He was, he was coming in to worship at the temple, and now his, his clothing is torn. He, he feels his, his clothing wet. As he looks down, he sees red. The, the, the blood is soaking through, and, and for a moment he, he's wondering, am I bleeding? But then he realizes, no, it's the blood of Jesus that's soaked into the beam that is now running down his body. Do you remember what they did with the Passover lamb's blood? They would paint it on the wooden doorpost, and as it ran down over the, the, the door, the, the angel of death would pass over. We talk as believers about having uh, Jesus in our heart, we welcome him into our home. And, and, and the Bible gives us this picture of as we accept the Lamb of God into our life, his blood is painted on the doorpost of our heart and God will pass over us one day in judgment. And here Simon is being covered in the blood of the Lamb. And as he begins to walk, it tells us he's following Jesus. He's following Jesus. He sees the back of Jesus that has been ripped open by the whipping. As he's carrying this cross, the angry crowd is all around him. The Roman soldiers screaming and hitting. The people mocking and jeering. And, and, and Simon is, is, is thinking how different that is from what he just saw down in the dirt. Jesus, as he's dying, turns to these women and speaks with compassion. And he says, come and receive God's gift. And so as he's walking along, as he's thinking of, of the words of Jesus, as he's looking at his back that's ripped open, maybe he's thinking of Isaiah 53 that tells us, by his stripes we are healed. Maybe he's heard, as he's been in and around Jerusalem, traveling into the city, he's heard some of the things that Jesus has been teaching, things we've seen earlier in Luke. In Luke 9.23, Jesus said, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Luke 14.27, Jesus said, Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. There's Simon carrying a cross, following Jesus. We don't know what's going through his mind at that moment. You know, when we see a cross in our day, it doesn't mean a whole lot, does it, to many people? It's a fashion accessory. It's jewelry. It's, it's stuff that people who aren't even Christians wear because they think it looks cool. But in Jesus' day, anybody who saw a cross didn't think it was cool. They thought it was cruel. They knew what it was. It was an instrument of death. It was the most horrific, worst way to die. The closest we could come in our day would be to wear electric chairs around our neck. Have you ever seen anybody wearing a gold electric chair? That's what the cross was. A way to die. And so anybody who saw a cross knew that it, it meant it wasn't a meaningless fashion statement. It meant instead you were willing to identify with Jesus. When he says, take up my cross, he's saying, we're saying we surrender to you, God. We are willing to follow you. We're willing to do your will. And as, as Simon is there, as we look at this passage, remember Simon didn't take up the cross willingly. The Romans forced him. 
They compelled him. They threw him in the dirt. They made him take it. But somewhere along the way, Simon comes to understand who Jesus is and what he did. The scriptures never tell us that explicitly, but the evidence is crystal clear that Simon is one who comes to faith in Christ. One of the places that we see that is in Matthew, is in Mark's account. Mark 15, 21 tells us, They pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene. Now look at what's in parentheses. The father of Alexander and Rufus to bear his cross. If you were here last week, you remember we talked about how there are four different gospels. And each of the gospels was written to a different audience. We saw in Luke chapter 1 verse 3 that it was written to a, a Roman official. Matthew's gospel was for the Jews, which is why we talked about that one trial that was important to the Jews, but not the Romans. Mark's gospel was written for the Romans. It was written in the city of Rome. It was written between 20 and 25 years after the death of Jesus. It means people were still living, walking around the streets of Rome who had walked the streets of Jerusalem with Jesus. People who knew Jesus, people who were eyewitnesses to the situation. And as Mark writes this this book to the church in Rome, remember these are real letters written to real people under the guidance of God. When you read the book of Philippians, it was written to the Christians in Philippi. When you read Romans, it was to the believers in Rome. The Galatians was written to the believers in Galatia. In our day, there could be a book of the San Antonians if, if God were writing to us today. And so when Mark says to the Roman Christians, hey, he's the father of Alexander and Rufus. People in Rome are going, these are leaders in our church. These are guys we know, but some of the people are saying, we didn't know Simon the father. And so Mark is connecting the family tree. He's saying, these boys that you know, their dad was Simon of Cyrene. Their dad was the guy who carried the cross. We see that again in in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 16, Paul is writing and he's greeting all these Christians by name. And in Romans 16, 13, he says, Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord also, his mother and mine. Paul is saying, hey, listen, I've been in their home. I know Rufus' mom, Simon's wife. She helped me in the, the spread of the gospel. You guys know Rufus, you know Alexander. These are leaders in the church. These names don't mean much to us, but the the Roman church said, we know exactly who these guys are. We know that Simon was a devout Jew. He had made that long journey to Jerusalem. He had traveled 800 miles from North Africa to get there, to fulfill the Mosaic law, to celebrate Passover. Pentecost was just 50 days after. You don't travel 800 miles and and just leave. You stayed. And so he was there for Pentecost to celebrate. After Simon carried the cross to Calvary, he would have been there when they took the beam from him and then they threw Jesus on it and they nailed his hands into it. As they set the beam, as they nailed his feet into the cross and then as they raised it and dropped it into the hole. Simon is seeing these things. Next week, we're going to see what happened as Jesus was hanging on the cross, how he spoke of forgiveness, how one of the criminals came to faith in him, how how God's son was saying, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing as they gambled at the foot of the cross. Simon was there seeing this, hearing this. 
He heard the words. He spoke to the women. He's hearing about forgiveness. He's seeing these things. If you were Simon and you had carried the cross of Jesus and you were hearing these things, wouldn't you want to know more about who he was? In the 50 days as he hung around Jerusalem, he would have been asking all kinds of questions. Who is this Jesus of Nazareth? And people are saying, well, he did miracles. He healed people. He cast out demons. He brought people back from the dead. He said he was the son of God. Simon is hearing these things. And then Pentecost comes. And, and as he goes into the city, maybe for the last time before he starts to head home to, to Africa, He's, he's there in the city, and as he goes in that morning for Pentecost, as he's going up into the city once again, he encounters another crowd, but this crowd is completely different than the first one. Instead of angry people, instead of seeing a bloodied man, he's surrounded by people who are bubbling with excitement. Everybody's talking about everything that's happened. Remember, after Jesus was buried in the tomb, uh, three days later, the tomb was empty. And people were saying, what happened? And the Romans are, you know, the Jewish leaders paid off the Romans to say, well, the disciples stole his body. But then there was this problem where Jesus was appearing to more than 500 witnesses. There are people in the street saying, I saw him. He's alive. And, and, and Simon is processing all this. If he hasn't yet come to faith, yet he's hearing these things. And then as he goes into the city, he hears the sermon that we find in Acts chapter 2. In Acts 9, uh, chapter 2, verses 9 through 12, it tells us as he comes into the city, he's hearing many things in many languages. It says in Acts 2, 9, there were Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt. And here he is in the districts of Libya around Cyrene. And visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own language speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? And then Peter stands up. Remember Peter? The guy we saw who denied Jesus in the court of Caiaphas, the high priest, but What's happened in the intervening days is Jesus rose from the dead. He appeared to Peter personally. He recommissioned him in John chapter 21. Peter has been restored. Peter is once again preaching the good news of the gospel. And so he preaches this sermon. We don't have time to read it all, but I encourage you to go home and read Acts chapter 2 and read the whole sermon. He says in Acts 2.22 and following, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And Simon's going, I saw it. I was there. I carried the cross. I felt his blood running down my back. Peter goes on to say, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And then Peter shares the, the prophecy of King David that we read about earlier in Luke. 
He says in Acts 2.31, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. 500 witnesses are in the street going, we've seen the resurrected Lord. Therefore, having been uh, exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to their heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. A word that means to realize you're going the wrong way, to stop, to turn around and go in the other direction. You've been walking away from God. Stop going to your sin. Stop and come to him. Receive the gift. He says, Repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children. And for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. And Acts 2.41 ends by saying, So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Now, in my Bible, I don't have a list of the names. I don't see how Simon of Cyrene was not one of them. This man who carried this cross for Christ, this man who saw the Lamb of God face to face, this man who heard his words, this man who hears Peter say, This is who he was and what he did. You know, at the time, Simon had been reluctant, pressed into service by the Roman soldiers. But as he realizes who Jesus is and what he was doing, he would have said, If I had known then, I would have begged for the honor of carrying the cross. No soldier would have had to compel me, force me. I would have done it. And as the one who heard about who Jesus was, I'm sure that as he carried the cross, Simon thought it was the worst possible moment in his life at that moment. His dreams had been crushed. His long-anticipated plans for the trip were were turned on its head, but it turned out to be a life-changing experience for him, and it changed his life. As he comes to receive Jesus as the Christ, the word that means the Messiah, he found forgiveness. He found new life. You know, there are times in our lives that we will all face difficulty and disappointment. There are marriages, relationships that fail. There are jobs that are lost. There's the death of loved ones. There are times things don't work out. Our health declines. We go through struggles and temptations and addictions. And in those dark moments, we can feel hopeless. But instead, what God says is, I want you to turn to the cross and I want you to find hope and help. The Bible tells us in Psalm 46.1 that God is our, our refuge and our strength, a very present help in times of trouble. And it's not just for this life, it's for the life eternal. Jesus died to give us hope and help, not just here, but the ultimate help we needed because we were sinners, far from God, separated from him. And he said, I provided the way home. 
I died on the cross so that you would have the bridge to come to the Father and be reconciled. Think of the story of James Keller. He was a a chaplain in the U.S. Army. And he tells of a time that he was doing the funeral for a, a soldier who was killed in action. As he conducts his funeral, there was one of the the dead soldiers' battle buddies who was there who actually had had his life saved. This one soldier had died sacrificing himself to save his friend. And when the funeral was over, the room cleared out, but this one soldier remained. And he stayed by the coffin for quite some time. And then he he took out a piece of paper and he wrote something on it. And there was a, a cross on the top of the casket and he put this note under the cross and he left. As the soldier was leaving, this note slipped out and it it fell to the floor. So the chaplain walked over and he picked it up to put it back under the cross. And as he did, he saw the words that had been written. It said, thanks, Joe, for dying to save me. I will never forget your sacrifice. Brothers and sisters in Christ, as we look to the cross, I hope that we linger. I hope that as we come and we see crosses, we stop and we say, Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Thank you for sacrificing yourself for me. I will never forget what you did for me. As Simon hears the sermon, he finishes in worship. He heads home as a a changed man. The one who carried the cross of Jesus now carries the message home to North Africa. Can you imagine getting home and his wife and kids are there? Dad, honey, how was the trip? Simon says, sit down. I got to tell you about the trip. And he recounts the story and they shudder with horror when he gets to the, the part where he says, these Roman soldiers grabbed me and they threw me to the ground and they had a sword out and I thought I was going to die and, and they're, they're, they're transfixed. And he said, and I was looking into the eyes of this man dying and I didn't know who this condemned criminal was. And, and, and then I was there at the cross and, and, and I heard him say, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And he had told these women about this prophecy that we've read. And, and he recounts all the events and how the tomb was empty and people said they saw Jesus alive and then and then I heard Peter tell us who he was and what he did and I believed I placed my faith in him and he's changed my life and he invites his wife and his kids to receive God's gift of grace and they become believers Paul said I was in your home your, your sons are leaders in the church. And it wasn't just his family that was changed. That whole region was changed. Remember Cyrene was this, this Jewish enclave. And archaeologists have, have uncovered graves from the early first century of Jewish believers buried in Christian burial there in, in Cyrene. Because the message of the gospel came home and they came to faith. Read Acts chapter 13. You see other leaders in the church who were, who were there. Acts 13, 1 tells us about Simon the Niger. You've heard of Nigeria. It means black. Simon the black, this African believer, was a, a, a leader in the church. There is another man that's called Lucius of Cyrene. He was a leader in the church. It's not just his boys who were believers and leaders. Others were raised up to spread the gospel Friends, if you are here this morning, you've never received God's gift of grace, I invite you to do so. 
I invite you to look to the cross. To realize how much God loved you and me. Romans 5.8 tells us he demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If you think you're too far from God to have lived too much of a wicked life, made such a mess of your life, God wants nothing to do with you, that's a lie. Because Jesus said, while you were a sinner, far from me in rebellion, I died for you to save you. And Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He offers you the gift of grace this morning. All you have to do is turn to him and receive him as your savior to realize you've been going the wrong way to repent, to come to the cross and say, Jesus, I accept your death in my place. I believe you're who you said you were, the son of God. You rose from the dead. You conquered sin and death. You paid the penalty of death I owed. And I accept that gift gratefully today. It's not by how you and I live our lives. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells us, for by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of work so that no one should boast. And brothers and sisters, for the rest of us who have received that gift of grace, we need to do as Simon of Cyrene did and carry the message and share it with our family, our friends, with others that we see in the street to let them know who Jesus was and what he did. Next time you look at the cross, I hope you remember how much God loved you. And what he did to save you and me from our sins. You join me please as we close in prayer. Lord God, we want to thank you for the cross. The costly cross. A place of suffering and death. Horrific things that happened. But it is because you are holy and cannot have sin in your presence, that you, Jesus, came and took our place to wash away our sins with your blood, to pay the penalty of death that we owed. Father, as we think of the cross, we think of just how extravagant your love was for us. As you gave your only begotten son to die to save us. So God, we say thank you. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your love for us. May we who have received that gift of grace be messengers to carry the good news to the places you'll take us as we leave today. We pray these things in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.